Let's talk about the story of Adam and Eve. And welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure proudly produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Anthony Alegria. And today, in this episode, Anthony and I, we're going to recap everything we've discussed so far in the story of Adam and Eve. For those following us here, we've been talking a lot about Genesis 1 through 11, and we'll go a little bit into 12 as well, but we've really been looking at the morality that is built into these ancient stories. And we've been slowly walking through a lot of these old texts and seeing all the moral lessons that we can find in them. Now, before we get into this and we go through all the various themes of Adam and Eve, I just want to open up by saying, when I was in undergraduate studies, it was actually popular for a lot of people to discard uh, the stories of Genesis 1 through 11. Is that still kind of the case now, Anthony, or do people take them a little bit more serious? Where do you even see people in that regards? I would say that um, at school, that has changed dramatically and that... So you're saying a lot people... of the students at school now, at least that are willing to speak out in class, are on the flip side of that coin and basically okay. will um, really, really question and persist any time the uh, mythos within Genesis is questioned, which if you would like to uh, differentiate between mythos and mythology. Well, for time purposes, let's, um, mythos is more of a worldview sort of thing where myth on, where myth itself is sort of legend and fiction. Um, that's really a watered-down short version of that. But when I was in university, there was sort of a trend where, oh, you, you were kind of taboo. You weren't cool if you actually believed anything pertaining to Genesis 1 through 11. They were like, oh, well, those are oral traditions written down later. But you know what? These are beautiful stories, and they are truer than true. If anyone needs to hear a pastor say that, these are, are certainly truer than true, and this is exactly how evil works, and that's what we're going to be talking about with Adam and Eve. And this is how sin works um, as well. So today we're going to recap some themes and let's open up with this idea that God designed humanity. And you see this with the stories of Adam and Eve to be family. And the reason why I point this out is because there are a lot of people and you find this vein even within the, the church, um, not just secular people, but within the church, there's a, a mentality and a mode of thinking that wants to say God designed people to be community. But that's different than saying that God designed people to be family, isn't it, Anthony? It is. And um, I think what else is really, really interesting about this design is uh, the justifications for its creation. And part of that is that any animal is not good enough to be Adam's family. Yeah. Specifically, it a family is between a man and a wife, but also the reason why the wife fits the criteria to be Adam's family is because she's basically his equal among creation and yet also very different. Yeah, and when you come to this story, you find that God comes to, to Adam, and and even when he, he makes Eve, there's no counsel that God gives with him that says, hey, would you like to be creative? Would you like for me to breathe life into you? And there's this assumption that God says, I have created you, therefore you will be loyal to life and you will be loyal to, to existence itself. And that's an interesting thing. But back to this notion of God created them to be family, and the, the problem I have with people saying community rather than family is community is a generic word. It's like saying you need to eat a consumable. Um, well, you know, rat poison is a consumable, but you probably shouldn't eat that. Um, eating something like, I don't know, a cinnamon roll is also a consumable, but, you know, it's a lot safer to eat a cinnamon roll than it is rat poison. Um, it's, it's a word that a family may be a type of community, but it's sort of like a square and a rectangle. 
squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Um, not all communities are families. And as Anthony pointed out, you know, you can have a community with animals involved in that too, but that's not family. And another just built-in thing that's found here, and, and we'll find this, and let me read just a few verses out of here. Um, I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, and I'm going to read through 24. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the, then the man said, This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And one shall be called woman. For out of man, this one was taken. Verse 24, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. All right, so this is not generic. This is not some generic community. It is specifically family. And this is part of the, the human spirit. It's part of the divine design of humanity that they would be in family. And, and particularly another thing that we find interesting about this is, again, when one thinks community, they kind of think sideways, like your, your neighbor, someone living across the street. While God does look at humanity and say it, the task of being the image of God is too great for one, it's not this idea that it's something that will be shared so much with you and your neighbor, though that may be true, but it's much more saying this is something which you need ancestors and descendants to do. And while it is not something that we find when we look to hear that Adam and Eve have already had children, again, we don't see generations yet, but the language of generations is unmistakably here in Genesis, both with this idea of a man leaving his father and his mother. And again, you find this, this is what happens. People, they, they grow up. They, they go and they get married, and they become an autonomous unit. And again, they, they take off where their ancestors come from, and they're handing things off to their descendants. There's this idea that God is the master gardener, and he has servants, humanity. And it is a big task to be a servant of God, and you need generations to do that. You need ancestors and descendants. And that's a really, really important thing. Anthony? I think how the um, church has retraditioned this notion of family is also really, really interesting. If you look at, for instance... <clears throat> the ideology of the second birth or being born again. Yeah. And so once you're born again, obviously, uh, there is this notion that you have become a child of God. And beyond that, the early church was very, it was very, very common to refer to your fellow Christian as your family. And even Christ says whenever um, he's in a crowd of people who tell him that his family are waiting outside for him, he says, I see my family here among the faithful. Yeah, the woman who believes is my mother, and those men who believe they are my brothers, and he starts pointing at those around him, and so I think here in Genesis we also find a really, really strong argument for the church for Christians because specifically for Adam he can't again just any animal won't do it has to be somebody that is his equal among creation, and so what separates man from the beast is obviously his proximity to God. He is the image of God. And so, in many ways, he is better than those other animals. And uh, Christians, as being those who have been regenerated in Christ, those who have been enabled, those who have been brought closer in proximity to the Lord, um, they need a, a likewise community, a likewise family, rather. And so, where they find that is in the church. And I think that's a really um, interesting argument for the church here in Genesis. Yeah, absolutely. And just to wrap up this notion of family again, it is part of the providential design of humanity that we would group ourselves in families. And moreover, even, even when you find in Genesis, there is a lot of division that happens within the family pretty quickly. 
You look at Cain and Abel, we haven't got there yet, but there's death. You even look at Adam and Eve, there's there's sin, there's a little bit of name calling, there's a some bad stuff going on. But ultimately, God is wanting to redeem the, the families of humanity. And even when we find sin and things coming into the world, when we find tragedy, when we find all sorts of chaos, suffering, and even death that come to, to take apart families and separate ancestors from descendants, the ultimate redemption for this is only found in Christ Jesus. No worldly power is going to have any redemption and reconciliation amongst families. That can only come from God. And when we see things from the, the cosmic perspective that Genesis brings to us, we really see that, that God has a design for us. And even as that breaks down, God is still wanting to give hope to that. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment, the, the hope that God has for them, even as they, they have sinned. Now, that'll be more of a wrap-up. So the next thing I, I want us to touch at, which we had already pointed to earlier, is that God expects Adam and Eve to be loyal to God and to life without consulting them for an oath. It's implied by the structure of their situation. There's this idea that we should not be disloyal to life, nor should we be disloyal to the goodness of God. And we see things like suicide, which are ultimately disloyal to life. And this is really a, a tragic thing because God does expect us to, to have loyalty to our providential design. And even as that is broken down, God is always working to bring people back to the design he had in store for humanity. And just to read a little bit of scripture to, to back this up, because this is one of the themes that we have here is beginning in Genesis chapter 2 in the middle of verse 4, it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb was of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water would fill the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. All right. This is Genesis 2, where we see Adam coming. But God does not come and say, Ah, oh, dust, would you like to be a, a man? Would you like to be humanity? He doesn't come and say that. God just comes and creates, and he blesses, and then there is an expectation that this new thing, which has had life breathed into it, it itself will carry out the mission which is handed to it. It will breathe life into other things. Now, it is an, an agent of free will, and that free will will lead to sin here in a moment, but God places it there with an expectation that it too will breathe life. It, it will be fruitful and multiply. It will be a blessing. Anthony. Well, what's great about this is that obviously um, God is lifting the dirt up. The dirt and the dust is becoming much greater. It is becoming the image of God. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, obviously, I think even if you don't care for that side of that argument, nobody wants to be dirt and do dust. That's nobody's dream. To be dirt and dust is a lot worse than to be uh, humanity. And so I think that um, God is always lifting things up. And what's interesting is that you see a very similar thing with God appointing um, those who would become the leaders of his people. Whenever you look at, you know, Moses, basically any of the prophets, there's an initial attempt at rejection, and God says, no, this isn't something that you can reject. I'm going to make you better. You have free will in this situation. You can decide what you do with this, but I'm making you my servant, and uh, you're going to go and lead my people. Yeah, and this is something, this is aspirational. Even though the dirt itself may not be, it, I mean, it's dirt. It's not capable of saying, yes, I want to become that, even if God... Um, it comes even if you were to go out and have a conversation with something, it probably wouldn't be able to respond back. But this is the thing with God; He has a a greater perspective than we do. 
And there are a lot of people in our world where if they were counseled for something like this, many people, they're, they're comfortable with where they're at. We recently, we had a guy, uh, Michael, come to talk about how coming to Christ helped free him from addiction and how really with one has to be willing to turn to God and, and it takes providence to come and step in. You know, people are addicted to lifestyles that they don't want to get away from. People are addicted to a lot of things that harm them. And God does not come and say, you know, do you want something greater than where you're at now? He just comes and brings it and expects them to, to come along with it. And this is when things built in. Um, it's an interesting thing to contemplate because, because you know, this is a lot of times how, how people are in the world. They, they're not really wanting, maybe they're not even capable of aspiring to something greater, but yet God is pulling them to a higher place. Um, let's move on to the next point just for, for time purposes. The next thing I want us to talk about is the hierarchy of creation. Now, we live in a day and age where a lot of people, they, they don't have a mode of thinking in their mind where they really understand hierarchies well. And we, we can't appreciate the master-servant relationship very much in our, our modern world. And humanity is the servant of, of God. Um, and for a good insight into the, the mode of thinking of a proper understanding of how master and servant should be, I think one of the best examples is found both in the Jules Verne novel Un, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with Kansei and Professor Aranax, but also in Around the World in 80 Days with um, Past Part Two and, and Phileas Falk, where you see a master elevating their servant and even willing to die for their servant, because that's really what God does. Humanity is created to be the servant of God, and they're given dominion over the earth. And this is the, what it means to really be a servant. A servant has a lot of responsibilities. They must be unmistakably loyal to their master, sort of like Adam and Eve. You know, they're created there to be God's servants. God is the master gardener. They're there. He did not ask. He did not come down and say, hey, I want you all to sign a long, lengthy contract, you know, get it notarized, go through all the legal avenues, and I want to make sure that you're consenting to this. No, God creates them and says, you are my servant, which means you must be fully loyal to me, but it also means that I am going to be entirely loyal to you. And in fact, God is so loyal to, to his servants that he ultimately sends up his only begotten son that he would die so that his servants could be restored when they're unworthy, when they're terrible servants. You know, that's, that's one of the things that we find here is that there is a hierarchy in creation and humanity is somewhere in the middle. They have responsibilities. They have dominion over the earth. That doesn't mean they have dominion over the universe. You know, they're not the, the supreme rulers of the cosmos. But they do have their area of influence. And that's really where we find humanity. You know, they're, they're placed somewhere in the middle. They're above the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the things which creep along the earth, but yet they're beneath God. And we find this in Genesis 1, where it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and every living thing that moves upon the earth. Again, that's Genesis 1, Humanity has a place in the divine hierarchy. And I don't mean the hierarchy of things that are divine, but the divine designed hierarchy. But it's kind of hard to say divine designed back to back. But this is where humanity is. Anthony, any thoughts on us having dominion over the earth? I definitely think it's a huge call to stewardship and responsibility, of course. And a lot of times people forget, well, they say, oh, well, that just means that they're slaves to God, right? Well, no, a servant is different from a slave. The, the servant, it is rewarded. They're paid, and a lot of times they're, they're elevated. Um, again, the, a, a good relationship between a master and a, a servant really is one where, 
where the the servant is is cared for greatly by the master. And again, Bruce Wayne and Alfred is another good example of this. Um, you do find where God, he does wonderful things for, for humanity, and humanity keeps messing things up. They're really bad at being a servant, but but God is really nice to to um, Adam and Eve, even though a lot of people will say that, that he's mean for throwing them out of the garden. We're going to get to that here in a moment. So the next thing I want us to talk about is that evil can't win without you giving into it. This is the old notion that, you know, no matter what they do to you, they can never have your soul. This is pretty much true. In Genesis 3, 1 through 6, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, and knowing good and evil. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Evil is tricky, but evil cannot win unless you give in to it. But it convinces you that you're doing something that is good. If you look here within this built-in morality, um, you see Eve, she's looking at this this thing and she says, oh, this is good for, for food. We've got a fruit here. She looks at it and says, ah, this is good for food. You know, she may be right. In fact, I don't have any indication that Eve is lying when she says that. But the problem is, is this is bad thinking because it's more than just a fruit. It also contains the knowledge of good and evil. She has a single piece of the puzzle and she's using that to excuse all the other pieces. Anthony? Well, it's sort of like Tide Pods. They look like they'd be really sweet. They look like they taste really, really good. And then you find out they're actually full of detergent. Well, at least I haven't found out. But I'm, and you I'm know, sure plenty you know, he was quick to go there. The forbidden fruit that is Tide Pod. Anthony, if I find you eating Tide Pods, um, I think that, I'm barely outside of that generation. Uh, that I'm barely outside of the Gen is Z going to go in. And next year's when I have to give a report to you to the district, I'm going to say Annie eats Tide Pods. Um, not really. I wouldn't do that if it's not true. Um, when it comes to the fruit, though, and this one is foam, so it's not real, but it looks real. You know, it looks good. You could convince yourself, oh, that's good for food. It looks great. You could convince yourself that a Tide Pod is good for food because it also looks pretty. But that doesn't mean that you got the whole picture. You know, a Tide Pod could look good. This could look good. But you're missing a piece of the puzzle. But we live in a day and age where people are like, but I see that one piece of the puzzle. And I I know I'm completely convinced. I'm convicted that that piece of the puzzle really is what I'm seeing it. And they dismiss all other variables in life. And they end up being legitimately convicted to do wicked things. I mean, this happened a lot in the 20th century. We see things like the Soviet unions. We see things going on in Nazi Germany. And, you know, it's a hard gig to keep up for tyrannical institutions, but yet you can brainwash people to do bad things by getting them to do essentially what happens here with Eve in the garden. They look at something and they get focused in on one variable and they say, ah, yes, I see that. That is good for food. And they forget that there's also a law against it. And it also contains the knowledge of good and evil in it put you on the, the course of death. They they forget all the other side things. Anthony? 
something else that's interesting about the serpent's lie is here. It's not just the part that um, you will not die. But this next part, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's like, okay, there's a lot about that that's true. Then they will know good and evil. Then they'll be more like God. But there's sort of this implied notion that God doesn't want Adam and Eve to be like him. And if you just think about it, that stands contrary to all the rest of Scripture, which is always saying, be holy for God is holy, yeah. for I am holy. But also, he create, they are the only creation recorded in Genesis to be in his image. Yeah. And so for the serpent to say, God doesn't want you to be like him. And if you get, if you eat of this fruit, then you'll have the knowledge of good and evil being more like him. That's why God doesn't want you to do it though. And it's like, no, that's totally not true. God doesn't want you to do it. Not because you'll be more like him, but because then you're going to have a whole new world of responsibility. And they're not equipped for that. Um, Not equipped for that at all. And this is where we're going to wrap up our conversation even as Adam and Eve, they, they feel shame when they realize they're naked. And they do this not just because they, they realize they're naked, even though from my observation of the world, the less clothes, um, sin, sin does make its way in that. You know, um, Being well-clothed does help save that way. But being naked itself is not sin by itself, but a, a lot of bad things can happen. Um, but I don't think that has anything to do with why they feel shame. I think they feel shame because they realize they are ill-equipped for the world. They, now that they can see good and evil and they can have knowledge of it, I don't think they realize that doesn't tell them what to do with it. It's sort of like if anyone lives like I do out here in rural Tennessee, you know, there's thorn bushes, there's thistles, which again, a thistle is a pretty flower, but it's one of the most awful things you could ever run your, your bare skin across. There's a lot of plants which give you rashes and things like that. There's wild animals, there's ticks. There is all sorts of crazy things. There's actually leeches. There's all sorts of bizarre things like centipedes, which have forks on both ends that will sting you like a bee. The world has a lot of things which will come and eat away at your flesh. And there's a lot of things in the moral side of the world where they're tricky. And just because you think you have knowledge of good and evil doesn't mean you understand what to do in the world around you. And Adam and Eve feel shame because they realize they are totally out of their depth. They thought that they would be in a better position, but now they realize, hey, we're out here exposed, we're naked, both morally and, well, physically, and they're not ready for that. Anthony? I think another good support for that argument is that if it was just a question of shame and nakedness being bad, then the clothings of fig leaves would have been sufficient. Yeah. But we see later at the uh, uh, end of the kicking out of the garden, that God gives Adam and Eve clothing of skin. Yeah. And so God is effectively preparing them more for the rigors of the world. And I think in seeing that, we can also see it's not just about covering. This clothing is deeper than that. It is something necessary to take on the world. And this comes along with their awareness that they're unprepared for the brutal reality that exists outside the garden. No, exactly. And yeah, while this clothing, it is in a sense armor, but it's also a moral compass for them. They're, and it, this is why the story is truer than true. It's a literal thing where you've got literal clothing, which will literally protect you if you go outside and you walk around in the world. Um, in wintertime, it'll keep you warm. In summertime, you can actually keep the heat and the sun off of you. Uh, but at the same time, their moral compass isn't ready to handle this. And 
While in verse 7 of chapter 3, you do find them making fig leaves for themselves, in verse 21, you find something interesting. It says in Genesis 3:21, And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Adam and Eve, they were not capable of, of handling the, the many things that the world throws at them. And their moral compass wasn't equipped. They tried to, to build one themselves. They tried to build clothes themselves, but it wasn't good enough. So God makes better clothes for them out of skins of, of animals. And, and he gives them to Adam and Eve so that they are actually equipped to deal with the world. And this is God saying, look, you messed up, but I want you to survive. I, I want you to move towards um, some sort of restitution. I, w- I want you to move in a better direction. And that, that's an important thing. Well, that's where we're going to wrap things up. And again, there at the end, God is trying to repair this family situation, even after it's got messed up and they had to be sent out of the garden. And uh, Brother Mills, who, who brought us a bit of a message Sunday, he, he was saying, you know, it was actually merciful of God because this enduring death they had and the suffering they had with this knowledge, if they were to eat of the tree of, of life then and have eternal life with that, then they would have essentially been in eternal hell, separated from God, broken off. Um, decaying, morally decaying, everything around them just rotting away, and it would have been the ultimate suffering. But that's not what God wanted for people. He wanted to say, let me let me give you better clothes. And eventually the, the master gardener, he says, look, my servant, they've been unfaithful, they've been bad, but I'm going to send my only begotten son to die for them so that they can live again. Well, with that, Anthony, any final thoughts, comments? Nope. Well, if you're out there in the audience, maybe you're someone in another Nazarene church, that is very good. Support your local congregations. And and again, we're not here to pull any way away from their church. We want to be supplemental to the Christian walk. Um, And if you're out there, you want to talk with us about this, send us your thoughts, questions, or comments. We're hoping to expand to have some things. Uh, If you are someone even looking to to have a, a phone conversation or something with us, please let us know. Reach out to us. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day.